Amen. Thank you, Barbara. It is well with my soul. Isaiah chapter 5. If you will grab a copy of Scripture, open to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. That's on page 787 in the Pew Bible before you. About midway through your Bible, you find the major prophet Isaiah chapter 5. Tonight, I'd like to spend just a few moments before we uh, engage ourselves with the Lord through His table uh, on the topic of the tragedy of lavish grace rendered fruitless. Isaiah chapter 5. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the blessing of it, how it encourages us, speaks to us, enlightens our mind. Lord God, we, we hope, we pray, we ask tonight that You would use this Word, leverage it in our hearts to teach us, Lord, about You. We need spiritual ears to hear, Father. So grant, please, us the opportunity we have now to grow and learn from You. May Your Holy Spirit lead us through this time for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Isaiah 5, I was uh, studying the other day, and uh, I, I love when I just get hung up on a passage of Scripture. One of my favorite uh, quotes is the great Charles Spurgeon said that when you're reading the Bible and you come to a place that, that uh, stumps you or baffles you or confounds you, to just stop, build a fire, set up camp, and stay there until you work through it. And that's sort of my um, uh, great pleasure when I come to mysterious things within the Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that we then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I want you to think for a moment about what on earth might that mean, that we, as His people, might receive the grace of God in vain. You know, uh, one of the the great blessings uh, of being in a fellowship like this is that uh, the Word of God is preached. You're exposed to the whole counsel of God. You are familiar with the sovereignty of God. It comes forth in the way that I hear you pray. I hear you speak to one another. I hear you use language that uh, indicates that you're a knowledgeable people about the Bible and and it's wonderful and, and so encouraging to hear things like that and to know that you have a great understanding and deep love for the Scripture, many of you, especially here on a Sunday night. But at the same time, uh, sometimes we as the Sunday night crowd may have uh, a, a sort of a, a tendency in our hearts to just uh, lean on God's sovereign work in our lives and negate the grand responsibility before us. And so I want us to think about how one might receive the grace of God in vain. First of all, think about how the, the way the grace of God comes into our lives. It's a multitude of ways. I mean, I could speak for weeks just on uh, the doctrines of grace and all the various ways that God brings grace to us. Um, I guess first and foremost, the, the, sim the simplest way of understanding grace is just common grace. Common grace is not that which pertains unto salvation. It can lead to salvation. But common grace is the grace and goodness of God unto all men. Um, the Bible says that uh, God causes the, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's the common grace of God. Every 
every sunset is the common grace of God. Every day that, that there's oxygen for us to breathe is the common grace of God given to all mankind. And God is good and gracious to all in many ways, apart from partiality, apart from uh, any uh, segregation or separation. God's just good to all of us in a multitude of ways. And I, I think that the value of that understanding is to understand that that unredeemed people can do good. That everything that, that an unredeemed person does is not necessarily evil because of the common grace of God. That God can cause uh, their, them, their, their hearts to illumine and their minds to understand and to do things that are of value and that are good. And so I think we see that many times people do uh, humanitarian efforts and things of that nature and they're not uh, redeemed people, but yet they do things um, that are based on reflections of the common grace of God. And so that could be received in vain in the sense that we could just merely take for granted and trample across the goodness of God on our lives and uh, maybe begin to develop some, uh, some idea in our mind that we are entitled to those things. But then there's, there's grace that applies to us. There's effectual grace that comes and leads us through salvation. Effectual grace that is applied to the lives of those we read in Scripture and to all of us here tonight have have undoubtedly been touched by that grace. For example, um, there's effectual grace that's applied through Jesus to Lazarus. When Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the grave, He doesn't have a choice as to whether or not He's going to come alive. It's the grace of God just, uh, you know, commanded over Him and He responds to that grace. Now, where it gets interesting, where, where that grace may be received in vain, is that what happens after Lazarus is raised from the dead? What happens after the blind man receives sight? What happens after the demoniac is, is healed and all the demons are cast out? What happens after God's grace is leveraged in a life that leads unto healing, salvation, transformation, and then, then what? You see, the grace is still applied. The grace is still there. The grace is what initiated this transformation that has occurred within us. So the question is, how might we receive that in vain? You know, never before in the history of the world has there ever been a group of people that had more freedom, more access, more resources pertaining to the things of God than the church of this time and this place and this country. Now, you got to receive that uh, because it's true, and you also have to receive that because it's obvious, and you also have to receive that because it's uncomfortable, because the Scripture says in Luke chapter 12 that everyone to whom much is given, much will be expected. And so... For us, uh, we have to ask ourselves the question, why is the church, and I mean the, the church, not this church in particular, this church and other churches, why is the church today in this place yielding such a small crop? Why is the church struggling to produce genuine fruit for the glory of God. 
Why? It would seem, based on what we talked about this morning and what my heart and mind have been centered upon for the last week of my life, it would seem that that the table is set for explosion to just be happening. It's, it's like all of it's like a science project where all the chemicals needed for the explosion are all put together and all that's needed is just atom and kaboom, here we go. Once they go together, we've got this reaction. Everything is there, but, but there's, there's no explosion. There's no, there's no smoke. There's no fire. It's just sort of prodding along. Meanwhile... Around the world, the gospel is exploding. It's exploding in countries of great persecution. It's exploding in countries of, of unbelievable famine and suffering. And yet the gospel is exploding. And it really confounds my heart and causes me to, uh, to just feel the need to pray unceasingly and to say, God... Please be merciful on me and on the people that I love so much and help us to, uh, to see. Open our eyes, Lord. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 5. I want to uh, preface this text by saying that I'm utterly and completely convinced that although this text will be, could be fruitful in a multitude of conversations and in a multitude of ways, for us tonight it is definitely definitely to your great advantage to look into this text as if you were looking into a mirror. I'm not talking about somebody else in another place in another time. I'm not talking about the people whom your mind is going to want to gravitate to as we begin to read this. I'm talking to me, and God is talking to you. And so let's read it for ourselves, Isaiah chapter 5. We'll just go bit by bit. Isaiah begins by saying, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard. So what happens is Isaiah comes out of the gate in chapter 5 and he, he's uh, clarifying that he loves God. He's in love with God. He deeply loves God. And he, he is really giving us a song uh, that, that is a love song to God. And he's going to begin to to uh, lay this song out before us. But the first thing you have to understand is that this is a man who deeply loves God and who has suffered greatly at the hands of the people that God has sent him to minister to, to proclaim the truth to. And so this man who loves God begins by saying that there is a vineyard and it's on a very fruitful hill. It's worth noting that... Uh, the Bible is going to clarify that this hill is fruitful, that it's, uh, it's not in a flood plain, it's not down in a ditch or a valley, but it's elevated, it's on a hill, and it's a fruitful hill, meaning that the ground is good, that the, the, the sun is, is what it, where it needs to be, that there's a breeze that comes by, that all of the things that are necessary for success are located here in this place, that, that this is a place of, of fruitfulness, this is a place of productivity, that the one who created it is already deemed this is good land. That we all know, I mean, even me, who knows the, the least possible amount of information about agriculture. All I know about agriculture pertains to my knowledge of the Bible. Outside of that, I am useless on a farm. But I know that all land is not equal. 
I know that some land is clearly better than other lands. I know that everyone's yard looks better than my yard. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that. So I can understand that there's variations in the degree of goodness to land. But the Bible says this is a fruitful hill. This is good land. Verse 2. So he, he, the one who owns the vineyard, he dug it up and he cleared out his stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. So upon this hill that's good productive land that is fruitful, the Lord has done the clearing. Because you can't just uh, decide you're going to plop down a vineyard somewhere. You've got to prepare the ground for the vineyard. You've got to do the, the work it takes to make it uh, acceptable to receive what it is you're asking it to do. And so the Lord does that by clearing away all the stones, which uh, there were no uh, excavators, there were no uh, John Deere tractors. So for a man, a human, this would have been a, uh, a, a obviously a lot of work, but... The Lord takes care of that. He's cleared away all the obstacles, all the stones. He's, he's planted the choicest vine. He didn't, he didn't put some, uh, broken down, untested vine and some bad, uh, untested ground, but he took, he took a good choice vine. He took a vine that had already proven itself to be, to be trustworthy, a vine that had already been proven to be fruit-bearing. It's good. All it needs is good soil. The good soil's there. It's been cleared away. Everything's ready to go. He even says he builds a tower in its midst. Why would you build a tower in the midst of a vineyard? Well, because, first of all, you need to watch over the vineyard and care for the vineyard. You need to protect the vineyard. And the way to do that is to put yourself at a high place so that you could be in a strong tower, so that you could watch over. You could make sure that that robbers weren't coming and stealing the grapes or that animals weren't coming and eating the fruit of all of your work. And so there's a tower in the vineyard to care and watch over and protect the vineyard. But also, also the owner has made a wine press in it. In other words... He's made a place to take the good fruit of the harvest and turn it into what it's intended to be, to take the, the grapes and, and make the juice and make the wine. And so I don't want to belabor this. I, I think it's fairly obvious, but just for the sake of some of you who, who may not consider the simple implications of this, you don't, you don't make a wine press on the dirt, now do you? You, you wouldn't, you wouldn't crush the grapes somewhere where they would be exposed to, uh, impurities. So in order to do that, you, you would have to, you would have to take a large stone and you would have to, you would have to chisel away at the stone and you'd have to make this indention. You'd have to make this bowl in the stone where you could put the grapes, where you could smash the grapes. And then you would have the stone wherever it tilted, wherever the lowest point is, you would chisel a little, a little runway for the juice to go out and you could catch it in your, in your stone pot, in your, in your clay pot. And I'm, I'm just wondering, I'm just considering, I, I don't know. I've never endeavored to do this, nor I pray to God I never have to. But how long would it take you without any modern tools to hew out a stone? To make for yourself this place. This would be agonizing work. It would take forever and ever just to get 
halfway done, but it's already done. The table's set. Whatever you need is there. The stone is prepared. There's a tower to protect it. It's the choicest vine in the best ground. Everything's been cleared and ready to go. And so the owner, the Bible says, that he expected it to bring forth good grapes because everything's there. Everything you would need is there. But it brought forth wild grapes. It it brought forth sour grapes, worthless grapes. Wild grapes are no good. They're of no purpose. They're of no use. You cannot use them for the intended purpose. They're worthless. And so what Isaiah is singing in this love song, you see, because you say, well, why is this a love song? Well, I'm no expert on love songs, believe me. But I do know that love songs are oftentimes born out of heartbreak. And that people write them and sing them when their heart is broken. And so the owner of this vineyard expects good grapes, but what he gets is worthless, wild grapes. Verse 3, And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge, will you please judge between me and my vineyard? What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? I mean, is there anything that I, as the great master of this vineyard, could have, could have done? Is there any step that I missed? Is there any extra thing that would have, would have made this more successful? Is there anything that the Lord could have provided to this vineyard that He didn't, that somehow we could accuse, that we could judge, that we could, we could find fault in the Lord for, for it wasn't right? You see, because we can't say that we we had bad ground. We can't say that we weren't strong enough or smart enough or had enough help to clear the ground. We can't say that we had a a, a bad uh, vine to begin with. We can't say that we didn't have protection. We, We really can't say anything. All we can say is everything that we could have ever needed to produce good, fruitful harvest was given by the owner. So why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Why? Why? And why? Why? How many, how many times in a week do you say, why, God? Isn't that the question that everyone wants to know? Isn't that the question that runs off of most of the conversations that, that I have with people about God? Isn't that the the preeminent question that dominates the mind of a believer who's faced with some horrific tragedy? Why, God? Why has this happened to me? Why would a child die? Why would cancer come? Why would some bad thing happen? Why is there drunk drivers, Lord? Why? Why? That's what we all want to know. But you see here, God turns the tables. Because instead of the normal situation where we're saying, God, why? You see, because the issue is clearly sin. You can see that. I can see that. The rest of the chapter of Isaiah is six clusters of grapes, each cluster representing a sin of the people. But normally, it's us saying, God, why has sin touched me in this way? But here, God's saying, why 
has your sin touched me in this way? Why have you failed to yield when you've been given everything that you could have ever dreamed of? You see, that's the the senselessness of sin. That's the, the searing ability of sin to just sear our brains so that we're unable to, 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 to think clearly. We make decisions that are just utterly irrational. We chase after things and do things that at one time in our life we would have thought we would never do. But some of you in this room right now have just recently gone through situations and circumstances where people that you love have turned their back on everything that they once said mattered and have thrown it all away for worthless, senseless sin. And it breaks your heart. But the question is not us going, God, why? It's God asking us why. Why? Verse 5 now Please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge so the protection will be gone and it will be burned and I will break down its wall and it will be trampled down. I will lay it waste and it will be, it will not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns and I will command the clouds so that they do not rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, there's oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Now, who who is crying for help here? We are. You see, we're the people in this vineyard. It's the church that's in the vineyard. And I will show you that as we progress, but we're, we're the ones who have been given everything to bear fruit. We're the ones that have need of nothing or lacking nothing, and yet we're the ones that God looks to for justice. He sees oppression. He's looking for righteousness, and behold, we're saying, God, help me. I, I, I want to plant good plants, Lord. I want to be a good vineyard, God. But you got to help me. We walk around and we say, God, I, I want I want to I be for your glory. Lord, I want to live for you. I, will you help me? Will you help me, Lord? And God's thinking, well, haven't I already done that? What more can I do? What what do you need that you don't have? What's the deficiency? Well, what is keeping you and me tonight from righteousness? Why is it that all of us in here, if we had any understanding of what is about to take place in just a few moments around this table, that every single one of us has repentance to bring forth. To come to the Lord and say, God, I failed you. I failed you, Lord. I, 
there, there's wicked thoughts in my heart. There's gossip in my mouth. There's, there's lust that, that flows through my head. There's, there's all of these things that, Lord, and I, I want to be righteous for You. Will You help me? Will You help me? And we're about to partake of the, the body and the blood the symbol of God's yield for us, His enabling power given to us. Him saying, here is not only everything you need, but infinitely more here. You see, the, the Old Testament sometimes, it, it, it seems so harsh, this God. The prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 33, the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It doesn't please the Lord. But that the wicked would turn. That's his desire, that they would turn in his way and that they would live. That this, this God who responds seemingly so harshly to this vineyard, that it's going to be torn down, it's going to be burned, it's going to be eradicated, it's going to be done away with. What, what are, are we that vineyard, Lord? Is, is that your response to us? Well, the prophet Ezekiel goes on to say in chapter 36 that there's going to come a time, the Lord says, when I will give a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you, my people, and I will take the heart of stone out of flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you I will cause you, the Lord says, to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments and do them. And so on one hand, we see the Lord saying, this, this unfruitful vineyard has got to be torn down. It's got to be burned up. It's got to be done away with. It, it, will, it will never be useful again. It's got to go. It's got to go. But the Lord's not done there. It does have to go. But what will the Lord do in response to our cry for help, although we have all that we need, the Bible says, pertaining to life and godliness? What is His response to us when we say, God, we want to be righteous, but help us? Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Verse 33. Jesus is confronting the religious leaders. And He says in verse 33, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and he set a hedge about it. He dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Then he leased it to the vine dressers and he went into a far country. And when vintage time came, when harvest time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that he might receive its fruits. Verse 35, but the vine dressers took his servants and they beat one and they killed one and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first time 
and they did likewise to them. But then last of all, He sent to these perpetrators, to these murderous, thieving people, His Son, saying, Surely they will respect My Son. But when the vine dressers saw the Son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill Him and seize His inheritance. So they took Him and cast Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. Therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Jesus poses the question to these religious Pharisees. And they said unto him, Well, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. And and he will lease his vineyard to another vine dresser, one who will render him the fruits of its season. And Jesus said unto them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, and whomever it falls, it will grind him unto powder." Jesus is the response of a loving God to people who have everything they could ever need to succeed, that have been given every opportunity, that have seen His love in a million different ways, that have been been brought into His presence, that have been cared for by His very hand. And He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to deliver truth after truth after truth. And they mocked them and they scourged them and they killed them and they stoned them. And His response to those people is to send His Son. And rather than than plead ignorance and say, we just thought it was another one, they confess, they know it's the heir. They know who He is when He shows up, but they murder Him as well. That's the response of a loving God to a people who are without excuse. Listen. What do you need that you do not have for righteousness? What? What will you say in that day when you stand before the owner of the vineyard and he asks you, not me, not your parents, not your wife, not your husband, you. When he looks you in the eye and he says to you, what more could I have done that you might produce a good crop? What will you say? What reason will you give? What do we not have tonight? Is it not true that though we have been poor stewards of the vineyard, the table is the celebration of a God who rewarded the poor stewards of the vineyard with His very 
best. He wiped the slate clean. He took away all the stain of all that we've done. He declared us not guilty in the courtroom simply by faith, merited only on grace, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It's all about Him. He gave everything, has delivered it all to us. Now, what will we do in response to that? How will we approach this time in response to what He's done? Listen, you only have one life. You only got one. No matter where you are tonight, no matter how young you think you are, no matter how old you've convinced yourself you feel, you need to start digging. You need to start pruning. You need to get busy about the Father's business. Because there is no excuse. You don't lack anything. So let's shake off the shackles of the lies of the enemy that have convinced us that it's okay to swim in the shallow end of our little pity party. And let's be honest about who we are and what we've been given. Let's repent and get with it. Because that's what the table is all about. So let's stand, bow our heads for a moment and close our eyes and consider that in a moment we're going to remember what God has done in Jesus Christ. That we were once aliens, we were once far away, but have been brought near through the blood of Christ through the broken, battered body of the Son of God, that that event in history should forever mark the joy and the glory of who we are as His people. And He, if there's anything on the planet that He does not take lightly, it is this. I cannot commend to you strongly enough not to trample on this moment. If you are redeemed, you are commanded. There is no option before this table. You are commanded to repent in joy and thankfulness and partake. That is your duty as His child. That is your unbelievable, lavish privilege tonight. So please, please do not come lightly to the table. Do not think flippantly of your sin at the table. It's not about anyone else but you at the table and Him. It's an intimate moment with Him. 
If you are unredeemed tonight, if the blood of Christ has not been applied to the sin in your life, then please simply pass the plate by. It is not a time for you. It's a time for His children to be reminded of who they are in Him and all that He set us here to do. And so though it hurts a little bit now, it won't once you get up here because there's grace upon grace for those who come to Him and say, Lord, cleanse me, forgive me, use me, Lord, touch me. I'm sorry. I want to live for You. I want to walk with You, Lord. I have no excuse. But You've forgiven me through Your Son. And I'm so grateful for that tonight. If you don't know Christ, then tonight might just be your moment to be born into this new kingdom. And I would encourage you to come. Come to the front. Seek out me or Pastor Rod and say, I need to know Jesus tonight. And tonight you can know Him. But in this time, just do as God leads you to do. Whether you kneel where you are, whether you come forward here, don't take it lightly. Because He certainly does it. Father, I thank You for this table. Thank You for this celebration of what You've done, Lord God. Thank You as Your people, God, that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, Lord. Thank You. Thank You for establishing us on a firm foundation, God. We want to live this life for Your glory. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to read about it. We want to do it, Lord God. We want to do it. So thank you that we can because of your son, Jesus. For his glory.